your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me in studio is my good buddy, Harmon Dial. Harmon, what's going on, man? Pretty good. Just scrambling into the studio last minute here. But, yes. Uh, we made it work. We made it work. We're here on time. We're uh, we're broadcasting. Uh, we're back as well. I took last week off. I uh, had a little trip out to the island with the family. It was really nice. Unfortunate timing on my end because it was pre-planned well before. And then obviously because of the weekend and the timing of everything, we weren't able to do any shows right after July 1st to talk about free agency. But the good news is we're here today. We've got a lot to catch up on. We're going to try to get to everything. There's so much that's happened over the past 10 days or so in terms of player movement and all that that... We're not going to be able to cover everything, but we'll do our best to kind of whittle away at what you and I found most interesting, the biggest takeaways, kind of some of the trends we've noticed so far this offseason, and we'll just go from there. Uh, where do you want to start? Because I'm going to give you the, a blank canvas here to, to paint on. Uh, what caught your eye? What do you think is most interesting? I know there was a trade in particular recently that you uh, you wanted to get into. Yeah, the Alex DeBrinket trade was really fascinating because... For starters, the trade market, it feels, has been developing slower than at least I expected. And maybe that's just a product of teams just not having a lot of cap space. But the fit for him in Detroit is probably the best out of the bunch in terms of when you were thinking of potential destinations. I mean, right off the bat, the primary concern I had with DeBrinket was the cost of his next contract, Mm. right? Especially with the leverage that he had with the qualifying offer and I like to bring it a lot as a player. I was nervous about paying him, let's say, eight and a half or slightly higher than that, even on a long term deal. So the fact that the Detroit was not only, first of all, able to acquire him for a pretty modest return, you're talking about first round pick, a fourth, uh, and Dominic Kubalik, but the contract cost to keep it under eight million on a four year four year deal. And of course I'm sure it helps that he's from the area and, and that sort of thing. I think those are two fact. Th- those are two factors in terms of obviously the acquisition cost and then the contract ex- extension price that makes me feel a lot more comfortable with the bet because we know he's going to be high end goal scorer now and and you're hopeful that he can continue getting back to the sort of rate that he was before as a forty goal guy. But Twice, you don't yeah. need him to necessarily be elite elite. Even if, let's say, he's a 35-plus goal type of guy, at that valuation, you're happy with that. Well, there's a lot to unpack here. I want to talk about the Red Wings because they've been arguably the busiest team this offseason for seemingly the second straight uh, summer. But on the on the note of kind of Debrinkat's contract, I think it's I'd love to be a fly on the wall for the conversations he had with his agent throughout this process because... I, I imagine his agent was like, let's try to keep our options open here and not necessarily box ourselves in from a leverage perspective by just making our intentions clear that we only really want to go back to your home state in, Detroit, in Michigan and play for the Red Wings because you look at this contract and it has to be viewed as a massive win for Steve Eisenman and the Red Wings, right? You mentioned the $7.875 million per for four years. Those are his age 26, 27, 28, and 29 seasons. There's a no there's no trade protection in year one. Years two to four, there's only sixteen team no trade. So he's in theory could be traded to half the league without um his go ahead. And there's zero signing bonus money in this deal, right? So when you compare it to some of his comps like a Jesper Brad who signed um a couple weeks prior or Kevin Fiala the year previously, both guys got the exact same AAV in seven point eight seven five. They obviously each went on the longer end in terms of term. But both those guys got a pretty significant portion of it paid out in signing bonuses. They got full no-move clauses in years two to four in their deals. And so 
from the Red Wings perspective, it feels like there's almost no risk, right? Of course, for a player that's making nearly $8 million, I guess, conceivably, he could get hurt or he could struggle and, and you could be like, all right, well, you know, this isn't paying off the way we thought. But at this price and at his age and what he's already shown where his down season was 26 goals and whatever, it's nearly 70 points, it feels like you're taking away all of the risk with this deal and baking in quite a bit of room for growth from the Red Wings' perspective. Absolutely. It's it's exactly the type of win that they needed because, as you mentioned, they did a lot of tinkering. I think a lot of different pieces up front on the back end, but the one need that they still hadn't really addressed was adding adding that type of high-end goal score. And they simply needed, for their next step, the next stage in them improving as a team, they simply needed more star talent is is what it comes down to. There wasn't a lot of sort of help around Dylan Larkin um, up front offensively, at least. Of yes. course, you have Mo Sider on the back end. And, and that's where, obviously, Lucas Raymond... You're hoping he can take a take a step and within the next couple of years join that sort of territory as well. And then now adding to Brinkett, that's um, huge. And what I'm really interested to see now is it's so fascinating trying to unpack DeBrinket's performance last season mm. because there was obviously the drop off and there's the worry or concern that you might have, again, which is alleviated because the Red Wings didn't have to sort of um, pay a lot, but in terms of when you're talking about the ceiling of a guy and can he get back to being a 40-goal scorer, the biggest question is, can he continue to be that without Patrick Kane on his side? Because he had that in Chicago. And that's where Detroit doesn't quite have an elite playmaker. So I'm interested to see where exactly he'll sort of land in that department. But it is interesting to see, like, when you unpack his scoring profile... His power play production was basically the same. The drop-off was going from 27 even strength goals two years ago to only 16 last season. And I think when you look at the circumstances in terms of his deployment, right, this is a player who didn't get to play a lot with Tim Stutzla because Brady Kachuk is was the sort of number one, number one winger in that role. And then because of Josh Norris's injury, he's really centered by Shane Pinto. Again, talented rookie, but he's not the type of distributor that you'd that that would be the perfect fit for a trigger man like Debrinket. So coming over to Detroit, now at least he'll be able to get the upgrade from playing with Larkin. But also, I think this is one part of the argument that hasn't been brought up as much when we talk about the production drop-off in Ottawa last season. He's also just straight up really unlucky. Like He had, yeah. a, he had a lot of um, posts, and when you look at the last time his shooting percentage dipped below 15%, like, I'm, like it was 10.3% last year. The only other season was the 1920 campaign where he had 18 goals. Yep. And the next season he bounced back with 32, 32 goals in 52 games in that short 2021 season. So I wonder how much of the even the drop-off that he had last season was just a product of he didn't get as many bounces um, instead of just, hey, he's not with an elite talent in Kane. And so can he replicate that? It's a nuanced argument to try and unpack. Well, that season you referenced there, 1920, when he shot 8.7%, I believe that was the only time in his career where he's dropped below 15. And the optics, uh, in terms of like the timing of him having the year where he only shoots 10% and scores 26 goals last year, is obviously unfortunate for him, not only from a, a contract leverage perspective, but also just from how we view him as a player, because I think everyone was very interested to see how he would look without being on the receiving end of those Patrick Kane passes. I think it's highly encouraging that if you look across the board, his shot attempts, shots on goal, high danger chances, any single sort of generation metric that would you know, account for what type of opportunities he and what position he was in as a shooter, we're all 
right in line with all of his career best, right? It really does seem like it was just a matter of the efficiency coming down from a shooting perspective. Now, he had that one 20% shooting season, right, where he scored at like a 45-goal pace. He had another uh, where he was around 17 or 18%. I don't think, I wouldn't expect anyone other than like prime Steven Stamkos or I guess Leon Dreisaitl to shoot and finish at that volume that way moving forward. But he's a 14% shooter for his career. And I don't know, what would you set the line at? for next season like do you think it's do you think he's gonna be closer to 10 percent, which he was last year or like probably closer to the 14 i'd imagine which he's established his career high or his career rate and so if that's the case and he keeps shooting at this volume that's like a 35 goal scorer which i think the red wings would be pretty happy with considering i don't believe they've had a 35 goal scorer since marion hosa did it like 15 years ago for them wow that's I hadn't thought about how long it's been since they've had a prolific And it was pretty much scorer. one of the last times where a player of this scoring caliber also sort of went like, I want to go play for the Red Wings, yeah. right? That was obviously that team was firmly in their cup competition window. Marion Hosa was chasing a cup at that point. It was a very unique circumstance in that regard. And also he was clearly a superior player than Alex DeBrincat. But just in terms of like a guy who is a premier goal scorer and offensive player in this league, having a chance to go anywhere really and calling a shot and going to the Red Wings. Now he's from Michigan and that certainly helps, but that has to be viewed as like a, an encouraging development for the Red Wings, I think. And I, and their fans are understandably excited about it. Yeah. And that's where you mentioned 35 goals and him probably getting closer to his career shooting percent, percent uh, average. That's exactly the type of range that I was sort of thinking about in my head in terms of if I had to set an over under, um, like that's where it, uh, it be because yes, in Detroit, he won't necessarily like Dylan Larkin's a great player, but he's not an elite playmaker. So he's not quite going to have that same setup, uh, help right. that he did during his, uh, his best seasons. But at the same time, I really think that a big part of what happened last season was simply him not getting bounces and, and things not going his way, which I think will bounce back, especially since again, at even strength, Larkin as a line mate, and if he has, let's say, David Perron on the opposite wing, that's still going to be an upgrade on what he had uh, at even strength Ottawa last year. Now, again, obviously, on the opposite wing in in Ottawa, he still got to play with whether it was Giroux or Batherson, so it's not like he was without talent at all. But I still think Detroit will be, at 5-on-5, a better fit and opportunity. And and that's why I really like this fit for Detroit and I I think it's exactly what they needed. Well, they were desperate. They were they were desperate for this type of player, right? Like they were just miserable offensively last year. If you look at five on five, they were twenty eighth in scoring. Only the Chicago Blackhawks generated high danger chances less frequently than they did. And so, I think he's going to provide a shot in the arm off the rush as well. Where if you look at Corey Schneider's data for for tracking Red Wings games last year, Dylan Larkin was very good at carrying the puck up the ice and then creating shots and chances off of those entries. And then if he wasn't doing it, they really didn't have anyone else on the team that could do it on a consistent basis. And even last year when Dabrinkat's scoring came down a bit, he was still very involved in terms of those exact type of chances, whether it was setting up teammates or or shooting himself from those high-danger areas. And so I'm, I'm very curious. Like It seems clear that he's probably going to at least start as a running mate for Larkin, and those two guys are going to just try to do everything off the rush as often as they can. But it just gives them another another playmaker, right? Whether it's as a shooter or as a passer, it just gives them more offensive talent, which is something I think they did need as an organization quite a bit. And so I'm skeptical on how much of a difference just to bring at in isolation, as we kind of talk about everything else the Red Wings did here, how much he's going to all of a sudden improve their playoff outlook for next season. 
But I think that's sort of besides the point in this conversation in terms of being like winners and losers of this trade or whether the Red Wings should have done it because I think we're in agreement here in lockstep that for the acquisition cost and then what it took to retain him on this contract, it was sort of a no-brainer, right? He kind of just fell into their lap and it's like, all right, even if they're not necessarily ready to take this massive leap as an organization, when this sort of happens, you kind of you add this player and then you kind of figure out some of the other stuff after. Yeah, and it's like the Atlantic division is just so competitive that you almost look at it as a case of they took a step last season in terms of being more competitive. This year you're hoping is another sort of step towards that. And then the year after you're maybe targeting is let's try and make the playoffs because you've got at least Buffalo right there. And then obviously Ottawa as well as a couple of other rising teams that have promising young cores and Eiserman mentioned at the deadline that he thinks that they're you know, that they when he sort of shipped out Heronic and made the Bertuzzi trade to bring in more assets that hey we're we think we're a little bit behind we're still in a in a building phase here and I think they're just trying to manage that manage that long term outlook with trying to stay patient and not getting ahead of themselves but also you want to continue accelerating the process. And that's why it's so interesting to look at some of their other moves as well. It's the second straight year they were really active in free agency. And this is where, for as much as I love this Dabrinka trade, whether it's this summer or the offseason before, I haven't necessarily loved their work in free agency. And particularly, particularly the amount of term they've given to guys that are non-star contributors. I wonder if there was maybe a different way to add win now pieces without adding, you know, that sort of long, those long-term cap commitments. But that's another part of the equation that, especially when I look at Comfer and, um, and cop down the middle, pretty similar players in terms of being middle six pivots. And especially you're going to have within a couple of years, Marco Casper coming in as well. So it's not as if they were desperate to, to need another middle six center. Um, and and so that's why I'm curious to get your take on Comfer and yeah. how you think he fits uh, with Detroit and what you thought of that signing. I didn't love it. I mean, they were very active, and, I, and that's why I wanted to like differentiate between I really like the the Debrinkat addition, addition for all of the reasons we cited. All the other stuff is a bit of a different story for me. Where for the second straight year, as you mentioned, they sort of jump headfirst into free agency and spend freely as if they're a team that needs that kind of one final push to reach whatever destination they're trying to get to. When in reality they're very far away, right? I, I think it's tough to justify this type of an approach. Now, it's not like they were necessarily giving out max contracts or anything like that, but when you're looking at it through the prism of, all right, well, we're paying JT Comfort and Andrew Kopp $10.7 million combined over the next four years. We're paying Ben Sherratt and Justin Hull $8.1 million combined over the next three years. Like, I don't think they're anywhere near close enough to, um, to competing or being in their competitive window to sort of justify those types of moves, and especially in the volume of them we're talking about here, it is a bit much. I, I, I liked I like Goss's Bear for one year. Yeah. I think he's going to help them. I certainly like Daniel Sprong at one year for $2 million. Yeah. Um, Clem Cawson for $2 million one year, fine. Christian Fisher for one year. Like Those are the types of moves they probably should be making, and then either they find something that fits, and that's a player that stays with them for a while, or what happens, what happens last year, where they... You know, they don't make the playoffs, but they become a seller. They get future assets for them. I'm fine with that. And I think that's why it was a bit tricky to sort of reconcile the direction of this organization because we, I think we praised Iserman at the deadline for acknowledging how far away they were from some of their division rivals in competing and then pulling the plug last year and becoming an aggressive seller. 
And then once again, for the second straight offseason, their actions and their approach don't really kind of gel with that sort of thought process. Yeah, especially with uh, Comfort, it's going to be interesting because you see some people sort of referencing, well, yeah, he finally broke out and he was, and he was playing 20 minutes a night and 52 points, but you have to look at the context deeper there as well where he was playing a lot of his minutes alongside Miko Rantanen. So it's like, what does that production look like away from Rantanen? I don't, I don't expect him to be a consistent 50-point guy. And before that, I believe his career high is only 33 points. And you're looking at a player who on a contender is probably a 3C, mm-hmm. like a really, really good one. Don't get me wrong. And you're, and you're talking about a guy who has consistently managed some of the best defensive results in the NHL. So this is a legitimately good player. He's versatile. He's a player that can play multiple positions, move up and down the lineup. He's a good player, but just coming off of that type of career year, it just feels like you're buying high on um, on, on on a player who probably can't... Re- I don't want to say can't repeat what he did, but you're, you're just... You're buying at the absolute peak of his value, and I don't love that contract, especially, again, when you already had Cop in the mix as well. Yeah, and it's not even really a critique of the players themselves and kind of like in isolation, right? It's more so like the awkwardness of the fit with given where they are because... I guess the question you just keep coming back to is like, like to what end? Like, kind of what? Yeah. What's what's the ultimate goal? Like, what are you trying to achieve here? And I just don't think any of these players really move the needle enough to to justify it, especially giving out a five year term in that regard, right? So that's kind of why I don't like, it. and I think that's a very easy way to get yourself into trouble. Where it's like, all right, well, this isn't this isn't that big of a deal. They can get out of this. It's fine. It's whatever. But then these things kind of sort of add up, and then all of a sudden, you got a bunch of players kind of like in their early 30s, making more than they should with a couple years left, and you're sort of stuck in this weird purgatory where you don't want to be in the NHL, right? And, and so I think that's the point. I guess one final thing I kind of want to ask you about here on, on the Brinkett contract before we move on, because you uh, you segued there to talking about some of the Red Wings' other moves before I, I could put a pin in the conversation, was while you know I'm not sure Brinkett and his agent aren't losing sleep over the fact that he's making we're set to make $31.5 million over the next four years, getting to play where he wanted to play, right? Like, that's obviously a perk for him. He'll be back on the open market, I believe, when he's, like, 29 years old. He still won't have turned 30 yet, so he's on the right side of 30. That'll be the summer of 2027. I guess it doesn't really go in line with what we've seen from a lot of other free agents prioritize. It seems like everyone's sort of trying to get themselves to that summer of 2025 when we're kind of expecting the cap to go up to 92 million even or somewhere in that range we've also seen that teams are starting to move away from valuing wingers right like like money's not really being given out to guys who aren't true elite players of the position and while i think to is really good i don't think he's necessarily an elite winger so i'm not sure what the landscape is going to look like by the time he's on the open market again and how valued a player like him is going to be i'm sure if he has another couple 40 goal seasons someone will covet him. But I don't think it's quite as simple as I've seen of people being like, oh, this is a win, win-win for everyone because he'll also get another payday when he's 29 because teams might just be operating differently at that point. Yeah, that's a good point. I think there are two factors in play probably from the player's perspective. No, number one being that he's probably content going to Michigan and yeah. especially he has a young family, I believe. So being able to sort of have some long-term stability for four years as opposed to taking the approach of just taking a one or two year deal and then potentially having to move your family again I'm sure that was attractive and then the second part of that is I'm sure he's confident that he can bounce back and prove 
that he can be an elite player. Like I'm sure in his mind, he's thinking coming to a new destination, a place where I'm happy, committed here long-term, I can get back to being a 40-goal guy and I will get that payday. He probably has that belief in in his own mind, whether that's right or wrong, especially because you got to remember, this is a guy who in the 1920 season had an 18-goal season yep. after previously having scored 41 goals. So this is a player who's gone through the experience of, I've had an awful season. That, that was even way worse than the year he's coming off of now. And he bounced back and, again, the next year scored at like a 50-goal pace. So he's gone through that experience. He's not going to be second-guessing his ability to produce at an elite level yet. So I think he's probably looking at it as like, I'll be a free agent again at 29, and I'm and I'm going to be coming off of, let's say, multiple 40-goal seasons, and I'm still going to get paid top dollars. Well, I agree with that logic, which is why I'd actually want to get back on the market sooner like yeah. i think he is a good bet to not necessarily for score score 40 goals next season but certainly produce at a better rate than he did last year and have much more leverage so i'm sure you know it would have made it difficult to go to detroit in terms of facilitating a trade like this if he was like i'm just going to sign a one year deal and get back on the market like there's certainly that consideration but i would have if i were him if anything preferred a two or three year deal to get back out there sooner because i do i completely agree with what you're saying i do think he's going to have more counting stats i guess mm-hmm. to, to work off of at that point um all right, that's enough about the Red Wings and Alex DeBrinkett. Do you want? Here's my next team that I want to talk about with you: the Carolina Hurricanes. So they add Dmitry Orlov, seven point seven five million for two years. Michael Bunting, four point five for three years. They bring back Jesper Fast, Freddie Anderson, and Antti Ranta. And I think the big takeaway here for me is, in very Carolina Hurricanes fashion, they managed to leverage the present day cap room they had, right, which is pretty rare for a contender of their caliber to improve their team next season and I guess the year after while still maintaining long-term flexibility, which is what they seem to cherish more than probably any other organization in the league, right? Generally, to add players of this caliber, in particular Orlov, you're having a tack on years four, five, six, even maybe even more. And in this case, they pay a bit more. I don't think anyone would say Orlov is worth $7.75 million next season, but they were able to facilitate that, and that allows them to basically not have to worry about it because he is already 32 years old. Yeah, it's perfect, especially because now I'm I'm so interested to see what they do, what their long-term plan is on the blue line because you've got, like, first of all, Orlov's a great player and, he, and he's going to come in and provide legitimate two-way value. He can move the puck. He pr- provides solid defensive play. And just overall in his time in Washington, you watch him play and you're just like, this is an all-around, just, like, high-end number three. Like, there are just so many attributes that he brings to the table, even in terms of offensive upside, that it's perfect for what Carolina is trying to do on the back end in terms of having a lot of mobile all-around defenders who are good at everything. It does set themselves up in a very interesting spot because, mm. obviously, Brady Shea and Brett Pesci are a year away from unrestricted free agency, and both guys are entering their late, 20s and what we've seen from Carolina consistently is that they don't like handing out the huge six seven eight year extensions for non-elite talent I mean even like Dougie Hamilton finished fourth in Norris Trophy voting the year that uh he was a UFA UFA and Carolina was like all right we're, we're fine to let you walk right any other team is going how can we lose this guy who was top five in Norris voting they let him walk uh just countless examples, Trocheck, Niederreiter. This is a team that, because they don't like giving out those long-term contracts to players that are aging out of their prime, 
they're always thinking ahead. Even when you look at the initial Kotkaniemi offer sheet and acquisition, they were probably thinking well in advance that, hey, we're not going to keep Trocek. We don't want to pay him on his next deal, so we're going to proactively get ahead of this. So now that makes me wonder, okay, what's next in terms of are you going to try and monetize one of Shea or Pesci for assets? Then you've also got to keep keep, keep into account it's got a couple of stud defense prospects that might be graduating within the next couple of years in terms of variety and uh, Scott Morrow out of the NCAA and then um, Nikishin out of uh, out of Russia, a six foot four lefty uh, who uh, who's a cannon of a shot. Both those guys who was a deal breaker for a, a trade deadline, exactly. Meyer trade, right? So it's like, man, they're stockpiled with so much blue line talent, and it's just about okay, how are they gonna? deal with this excess and then you throw the Eric Carlson thing in mm. on top of that and it's like the blue that blue line situation in the medium term is so interesting to watch now that they've brought Orlov into the fold okay well we can take that in a number of directions before we do that let's jump to break here and then when we come back we'll pick back up talking about the Hurricanes and Orlov you're listening to the Hockey PDO cast streaming on the Sportsnet Radio Network Catch up on what happened in Vancouver sports with Halford and Bruff in the morning. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're back here in the Hockey PDO cast, joined by Harmon Dial. Harm, we were talking before he we went to break about Dmitry Orlov and the Carolina Hurricanes. We mentioned that, you know, $7.75 million for him obviously was by design by Carolina to give him more than he's probably worth to keep the term down at only two years. Now, that makes him the 20th highest paid defenseman next season uh, among active players of the position. And so you were hinting at this before we went to break, but I find it hard to believe that the intention here is to have him playing third pair left D at that price range. And especially because while I think he's going to be awesome on the Hurricanes, right? Like he's so aggressive, especially in the neutral zone as a defender. No one gaps up more aggressively than the Hurricanes do as a team. I'm sure Rod Brindamore will love how aggressive Dimitri Orlov defends. Carolina's biggest flaw as a team is turning shots into goals, right? That's all we talked about this past postseason and for years now. And so just considering the way they're already constructed, investing even more capital in just that position. We'll talk more about Bunting here as well. Seems counterintuitive. It feels like along with the contract status of Shea and Pesci, there just has to be another move coming here, which almost makes it more bizarre that they are listed as one of the two finalists in the Eric Carlson sweepstakes as well, because while he's sort of a unicorn in terms of playing the defense position, but really being one of the best forwards in the league, uh, once again, it would just be investing even more capital in this one position. I just, I'm very curious to see what I guess that next move is because this feels almost like a TBD. Yeah, and I think for Carolina, it was a situation where I think we've all known that in an ideal world heading into this offseason that their best potential fit would have been an elite goal scorer, right? Mm. We've talked about this for a couple of uh, summers now, but there wasn't, I mean, you talk about a guy like Dabrinkit, first of all, we don't even, like, who knows if he was on, if he was one of, um, on, on Dabrinkit's list in terms right. of a t- destination that he would have uh, gone to and signed, signed a relatively long-term extension with. But even even if that was a hypothetical fit or if that was po- possible, it's not quite the perfect fit in terms of actually being a, a sort of game breaker. And it just 
when you look at the marketplace, whether it's on the trade front or in free agency, I just couldn't put two and two together in terms of an elite sort of goal scorer. So I think their perspective must have been, let's bring Orlov in and we can then probably shift one of Pesci or, or Shea out, bring in more assets. And from there, try and look at like bank those, right? Whether it's at the deadline, maybe it helps you add a player who not necessarily is going to be a rental, but can, let's say, it, it, I don't know, maybe it's a Travis Konechny is, right. is all of a sudden available. And, and maybe you view him as a potential fit. Now you've got the excess capital to actually go out and, and get a guy like that. It is one of those moves that makes you go, okay, what's next? Well, they're, and they the way they operate as an organization is they basically assign a value to everyone. And if the value exceeds that in terms of what they think that player is worth, they will walk away. And if they feel like they can get that player at a value that falls under that, they will keep them, right? And so I'm, I'm sure in this way, their calculus was all right. Orlov's not worth 7.75, but for a two-year deal, we add him, and then all of a sudden that makes one of these other guys movable. Everything in particular, a lot of the attention has been focused on Pesci in terms of like the contract extension and what comes next and how desired he is by other teams as the right shot defenseman. But it would feel like Shea, who will be 30 this season and will presumably be looking for one last long-term deal when he hits down restricted free agent market next summer, would be the guy to move, especially since he's sort of, you know, you get him out, out the door all of a sudden, Orlov just basically steps onto that second pair of left shot, and that makes a lot more sense. Um, do you think that Tarasenko is that player that you were describing earlier in terms of what they need? Because he certainly was once. Um, I was actually pleasantly surprised by how good he looked and how effective he was for the Rangers in the playoffs. Um, at the same time, though, he's a player whose shot rate and chance rate has been declining for a while now and is probably not the sort of elite offensive goal-scoring dynamo he was in his prime. So I'm not sure. He'd be a nice get for them, certainly, uh, if they do revisit that. But at the same time, I don't necessarily think he's necessarily kind of exactly that type of player either. You're you're right on 100%. He's, you're going to be disappointed if you expect prime Tarasenko and you're banking on 30, 35 goals or, or something along those lines. But on a one-year deal, I still think that he could be a pretty good fit. Again, because of what you alluded to in terms of I was uh, pleasantly surprised by how he looked with the Rangers. It still seemed as if he had some pep in his step, some offensive pop. And in Carolina, he can be insulated from a two-way perspective, right? Just because of the makeup of their forward group, their defense uh, could help them on the power play. The other factor that would be beneficial for Carolina in a circumstance like that would be if you sign him to a one-year deal, then Tarasenko is in a position where he's so hungry and motivated to have a monster year so that he can cash in on one more contract mm -hmm. at the end of next season. And it just feels like over the years, how many guys have in a, have in a contract you're just popped off offensively? Like whether it was Bo Horvat, Nazem Kadri, Philip Forsberg, there's just something psychologically about, okay, it's time to get this bread that helps drive a player to the next year. And I'm not, again, I'm not saying that that's going to help Tarasenko get back to what he was in his prime, but I like the idea of a motivated, hungry Tarasenko joining the mix. And I think for Carolina as a whole, for me, when it comes to their offensive outlook and the state of their, state of their top six, for me, a big, the, the biggest jump has to come internally. It has mm -hmm. to come from 
Seth Jarvis hopefully showing the type of form that he did in the playoffs and as opposed to the regular Shikov, season. Right. Yeah. Sveshnikov as well. And then also, like, Kotkaniemi quietly had 27 points in his last 35 uh, regular season games down the stretch. And he started really slow, obviously, in the first half of the season, but caught fire. And if he can continue to level up, he's still only 23. So if he can be that type of player that he was in the second half of the regular season on a consistent basis, that's just going to help level up that uh, that second line. And that also brings me to point out that he's under $5 million for the next seven years. People are dunking on that contract um, extension. And I think people didn't realize the long-term play it was. I don't mean to veer off in another direction, right. but um, like I think those those internal young guys taking a next step is going to be just as important for Carolina to sort of level up as, as an offensive team. Yeah, we don't have time here to reignite the Kotkinami Wars. Okay, <laughs> we got we to keep it moving. Um, I do like the, the the bunting get for them as well, especially since there's only three years. Obviously more of a complimentary player than a driver, but we've seen him be successful playing that third wheel to highly skilled players in Toronto. And I assume the vision here is to play him with Ajo and Jarvis and basically just let him run loose as a puck retriever and kind of a, a net front nuisance. And I'm sure that he will be effective there as well. So yeah, it was, uh, I didn't go into this off season expecting Carolina to be so aggressive on the free agent market. I thought they'd be more uh, involved in the trade market. That's still, as we talked about, will probably be the case, but um, it was interesting to see them utilize that cap space to just basically go and get two of the biggest name unrestricted free agents in the market. You know, another player they have been linked to, as we mentioned, was Eric Carlson, and this is a good segue for us to talk about the Penguins a little bit as well because they are the other kind of top two finalists there on a lot of these reports for Eric Carlson's services via trade. And so the Penguins were certainly active. Um, I had a vision of what I would have liked Kyle Dubas to do in his first offseason in Pittsburgh. I thought it was a very intriguing spot for him because he would essentially get the green light to utilize all the resources available to him with the express purpose of getting the most out of these final two years that Sidney Crosby's under contract, three years that have getting Malkins under contract, especially with how well those two guys played last year. And they certainly made a lot of moves. I can't say I thought it was the most inspired set of moves uh, from their perspective. We can get into all of them individually here. But of course, if the final domino to drop here is consolidating a couple of these assets on their books into Eric Carlson, all of a sudden I could be talked back into it. Yeah. I, I think as it stands right now, they certainly made additions here or there. I love the Riley Smith pickup, but like you mentioned outside of that, I, I thought it was more of a traditional spending type of off season. Yeah. Like when you look at the Graves acquisition, when you look at them bringing Jari back and, and Eller, it, it wasn't, necessarily as creative as I thought it might be and that's where Carlson would be would, would be the cog that could take take them to the next level because I still don't have a ton of confidence as it stands right now in them as um as a true cup contender and, and I think that's all we want to see at this point right is them able to squeeze something out of the next year or two where you're still going to have Crosby, Malkin, Latang, the big three playing at the level that they have been Graves is also going going to be interesting because obviously they overpaid in terms of term. Like, yeah, that that's fine because you're not who cares about your three, four, and five. They're going to be terrible at that point when the those big three retire anyway. But 
it is interesting to me, and I'm curious to get your take, because Graves is a player that has built up, obviously, a strong reputation, plays tough minutes and everything. But I wonder how much of his game has been potentially insulated by always being in... He's been like in some a, great spots. He's been, like, broke into the league, playing on the Colorado Avalanche, caddying Kale McCarr. Yeah. Uh, last couple of seasons, possession powerhouse team in the New Jersey Devils. Last season, playing along, alongside John Marino. Like, that's a great spot to be in. And don't get me wrong, Graves is really solid defensively. Uh, and coming to Pittsburgh, playing alongside Latang, he'll at least have a dynamic puck mover. He'll absolutely be an upgrade on the blue line. But I've had a tough time discerning Graves' individual impact, and I'm not sure. Like again, he's going to be a significant upgrade on what Dumoulin was last season, right? Especially with how much his game fell off. But I, especially with the blue line being another year older, I really think they need a piece like Carlson for me to feel confident about that being a contender quality blue line. Yeah, I see the appeal in Graves. I personally am not the biggest fan. I just don't think he thinks the game at high enough of a level offensively where you can see time and time again the puck comes to an offensive zone and he just gets tunnel vision for hammering it towards the net as hard as he can. Defensively, he's a good rush defender. He certainly utilizes his, uh, his reach really well, but for such a big guy, I don't think he you know, defends kind of around the net or does a lot of the stuff that you would expect a player of that size to do. So I think it's a lot of like tools that aren't necessarily being used in the way that you would hope for. And at this point, that probably won't happen. I think the 4.5 is fine. I certainly would not have gone six years on him. But, you know, to put it all together for the listeners, so they spent big on Graves, right? Tristan Jerry gave him a five-year deal, which was I'm going to have Kevin Woodley on on Friday so we can we can save that for then. They totally overhauled their bottom six, which they were obviously going to do, right? They bring in Lars Eller for two years, Nola Chari for three years, Matt Nieto for two years. They trade for Riley Smith, as you mentioned, which only cost them a third. Um, replaces Jason Zucker, who took a one-year deal with Arizona and was really good for them last year. I think that's kind of... I like Riley Smith a lot as a player, but I don't think that's necessarily an upgrade. And they didn't buy out Granlund, which I thought they would do to clear up some valuable cap space. They also didn't move 14th overall. And I'd be very curious to with Zach Benson sliding down the board to wonder, and he obviously goes a pick ahead of them at 13 of Buffalo, if they were potentially holding on to that with the idea that he might fall into their lap because he feels like someone who could have been one of the few players to like step in, not next year, but maybe the year after, and actually give them a cheap scorer to kind of help bridge this era into whatever is coming next for the Penguins. I don't think Braden Yeager is gonna be that guy for them so um i was surprised to see them keep that pick and make it here's the thing i've seen a lot of talk about how carlson is is so risky and for them it's like oh you know he was so injury prone and he hadn't been as productive and last year was just kind of a one-off i think the the only real risk here is not doing anything if you're the penguins yeah right it's like crosby's 36 malkin's 37 both guys were so good last year all that matters is maximizing these remaining seasons you have with them because regardless of what you do by 2026 or whatever, you're going to suck. Like that's the nature of sports. Like yeah. there, there's no way out of this. And that's fine because they've had, what, nearly two decades worth now of being Stanley Cup contenders or at least regular playoff team. And so that's kind of the price of doing business. So why not take as big of a swing as you can here? And so I'm really curious to see how that would work, what that would look like. I assume it would have to involve Petrie and probably Granlund being taken back by San Jose, which 
might work because San Jose seems very reticent to retain money for the next four years on Carlson, at least like a significant cap hit. In this case, they could basically get off of those final two years of Carlson because Petrie and Grand will have expired by then. And that's a time when that money in cap space will actually be useful to the Sharks. It doesn't really matter for the next two years anyways for their purposes. So um, I do think there is a, I do think there is a trade there between these two teams, obviously involving at least one first, if not another prospect from Pittsburgh. I think the complicating factor is that uh, Petrie, I believe has limited no trade, right? So he could put theoretically a team like San Jose on his list. And then now all of a sudden you're having to involve a third team and, that becomes really That's fine. That's why they brought in Kyle Dubas. No, but so that, that's something Ron Hextall probably couldn't have pulled off. And that, I think that's why what the Fanway Sports Group had, had in mind when they uh, when they hired him to run this team. When they backed up the Brinks truck yes. and gave him all of the millions of dollars. Yes. Yeah, no, you're right. So it, I also wonder just how motivated Carolina is. Because let's be honest, if Carolina wants him as badly as Pittsburgh does, they by far have more assets. They have by far more liquid contracts and money that they could move out easily. The fit for Pittsburgh is a lot more complicated, but I agree with you that Pittsburgh needs Carlson way more than Carolina does. And I like the fit a lot better in terms of like this team needs another player that can be a high end difference maker that can drive the bus that can breathe some fresh air into this core group. Well, then like what they had to do this off season was fix up the bottom six, right? Because they had assembled all these pieces that did not make sense for Mike Sullivan and the way he likes those players to play. And now they're bringing a bunch of guys who can forecheck and can do some of the stuff Mike Sullivan's system needs. And they had a distinct lack of it before, but they didn't really do anything to help ease the scoring burden on Malkin and Crosby, right? Everything is still going to have to run through them. And at that stage of their career, that's a bit scary. And so certainly having Carlson there would, would help with the heavy lifting. And all of a sudden, if you're talking about like a top four, that's Marcus Pedersen, who was phenomenal last year and Eric Carlson, and then, Ryan Graves and Chris Letang. All of a sudden, like now it. you can you can you can you can talk me into the Penguins at least being like someone you need to take seriously next season. So um, that's something to watch for. Let's we got time for one more here. Do you want to do a, a quick note on the Seattle Kraken, who didn't necessarily make a ton of moves, especially big ones, and that's kind of why I think they're interesting because I keep waiting for the other shoe to drop here, and maybe that's foolish. From my perspective, because something we've seen from them in their short existence in the NHL is they're going to take a pretty kind of calculated approach here, right? They're going to be methodical. They're not necessarily going to take very aggressive risks. And they're also not about the the splashy moves as well, right? It's much more kind of like beneath the surface depth. And um, so in that case, I'm waiting for them to make a big move because they have cap space available. They have various buttons they could push but maybe they're just kind of keeping that in their back pocket and that's not actually going to happen this offseason yeah I was a little bit surprised now I think they're totally well equipped to replace some of the guys like Geeky and Sprung that they lost so that's obviously not a worry obviously getting Burkowski healthy again will be will be great I am I'm with you because they had some excess cap space and they had three second round picks. So around the time of the draft, I figured could they be in on the trade market to, you know, whether it's another defenseman instead of, uh, you know, they went out and signed Dumoulin or or whether it's a forward who can maybe help them out on the power play. I thought that they might look at maybe a move like that. And, and I'm with you. I'm a little bit surprised. That's not to say that it's necessarily the wrong direction because... 
they're able to take a more patient, slower approach where now they're continuing to build their prospect pipeline up. But they're also in such a weird spot where acquiring good players, like they have enough good players. Yeah. What they need is They need to turn stars. like two or three good players into one great player. Exactly. And it's like, so how do you do that? It's not like... It's a really fascinating goal to try and accomplish. And and I wondered, especially like where the lack of elite talent shows, I think most prominently is the power player in 21st in the NHL. And that's mm-hmm. where if you don't have elite options, it shows on the man advantage. And, I, and I've seen a lot of Kraken fans sort of go, well, we want a better power play quarterback uh, for, for the first unit. And it's like, yeah, maybe, maybe but I think you also just need elite forwards from the flanks and and in in your forward positions to help take that power play to the next step. And that's where, you know, I'd previously been wondering about, okay, could they swing for a guy like Shifley? And I I remember you and I had sort of briefly spoken about that. It, it's going to be really, really interesting to see how Seattle manages that over the next uh, couple of seasons. Yeah, I mean, they let Sprong and Geeky go for what Sprong got two million one year yep. uh, from Detroit. Geeky got two million for two years uh, from Boston, and I understand that both guys have pretty good arbitration cases, right? And they were arbitration eligible, so that's why they didn't qualify them. They let Carson Susi go for three point two five over three years. I think all of those are pretty reasonable deals. Now. Part of the reason to be skeptical about them building off of last year would have been, well, they led the league in 5-1-5 shooting percentage, right? I think as a team, they were over 10%. Well, two of the most efficient guys in that regard were Sprong and Geeky. I think Sprong was like a 14% 5-1-5 shooter last season, and he certainly, uh, he certainly got shooting chops. I wouldn't necessarily expect him to continue that, and so maybe one way where... This might be kind of like galaxy brain 4D chess type of thinking, but maybe one way to fight off a regression that's coming is to simply avoid bringing back the players who are most likely to regress and instead just basically go back, start restart the process and try yeah. to buy high on guys who, or buy low on guys who will work their way up and basically try to kind of keep that, keep that line moving, keep that cycle flowing. And so... I don't. I'm not sure they necessarily did that because I'm not expecting like Pierre Be- Edward Belmar at this point of his career to have a glow up. But like Kaylor Yamamoto at at the one year that they got him for after he got bought out is perfectly fine. Whatever. I don't. I thought Dumoulin looked cooked to my eye last yeah. year, so I don't like replacing Susie with him. But um, full year Car- Cartier as well. Yeah, and and Brokowski, as you said, will come back. Like there's certainly pieces there. The reason why I brought it up though is so they have 12 forwards, seven defensemen, and three goalies on the books right now, right? They have nine point one in million, nine point one million in cap space. They can open up another three or so if they buy out Chris Drieger, and they are conceivably going to have a second buyout window to do so because Vince Dunn's arbitration case is set for July twenty fourth. Now that's a, I'm very curious to see how that plays out because he was like top ten in goals and points for defenseman last season. So I don't think they necessarily want to actually get to arbitration with him, but there's things they can do here to open up even more room. And I just, I find it hard to believe that this is the team they're going to go back into next year. It just feels like there's another move to be, to be made here. Well, I wonder if Seattle's also the type of team that can sit on that flexibility um, in terms of money and, and assets and almost wait for the next big opportunity to, to come up, right? Mm. Like whether it's the next Timo Meyer, the next Kevin Fiala, the next, you know, Jack Eichel, those types of opportunities where maybe you bide your time and when you do see, 
you know, whether it's a franchise center, franchise defenseman, winger, whatever it is, the 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 a star hits the market that you set yourself up to be one of the teams that can really get in on the bidding. I wonder if that's part of it. It was also interesting to see that they were poking around on Carlson, but mm. I wonder if that's maybe the approach is to sort of wait for an opportunity when a guy sort of wants out or or there isn't a future for him in a particular spot and to then pounce on that opportunity as one of the few contenders that might have um, flexibility. Although with the cap going up soon, there are conceivably the next time a great player becomes available, there are going to be more suitors. So it could be a more competitive market. Well, And they have 13 million clearing up next summer with Eberly, Wenberg and Schultz coming off the books. And I believe Matty Beniers, second deal is really the only sort of big pay jump they have to account for. Um, I still really, you mentioned Shifley, I still really like Elias Lindholm for them. Mm. Like if you're rolling Baneers, Lindholm, Yanni Gord down the middle, that is a very, very, very annoying group to play against. Do you uh, like that next contract though for Lindholm? No, I I, I don't. But, uh, and, and listen, this probably just goes against like what we mentioned, like this ethos and kind of risk profile that they operate with. So it might be a moot point, but I, I do... I do think like they should be in the business of trying to consolidate some of these pieces and being aggressive because while they got a bit fortunate to make it as far as they did last year, um, it's clearly like a good team with a lot to build around. So I don't think they should just kind of take that for granted either. Harm, let's get out of here. Uh, I'll let you quickly plug some stuff and let the listeners know what you've got in the works before we uh, get out of here. Yeah, it's like the fifth time, so uh, I, I'm sure everybody knows my work's at The Athletic. Yeah, they're like, oh, who's this guy? This <laughs> yeah. is first time here. Who's this annoying guy yeah. um, that keeps writing with Canucks? Uh, no, I yeah, I've got a bunch of Canucks and national uh, stuff up at The Athletic, and uh, yeah, you guys can find me on Twitter and Threads now, too. Oh, there we go. Nice. So, uh, yeah. I love that, Harm. We'll have you back on again soon. Uh, probably not till next season, so enjoy the offseason. We'll be back tomorrow with another episode of the Hockey PDO cast, as always, streaming on the Sportsnet Radio Network.